Hi, and welcome to the Western Mass History Podcast. I'm Derek, and in this episode I'll be looking at the history of the Summit House and Railroad on Mount Tom in Holyoke. Mount Tom is one of the most distinctive landscape features in the Connecticut River Valley. At 1,200 feet, it's nowhere close to being the tallest mountain in the state, but it's one of the most prominent mountains, rising nearly 1,000 feet above the surrounding valleys. This makes the mountain visible for miles in every direction, and in turn provides dramatic views from the summit. Geologically, Mount Tom is unusual compared to most of the other mountains in western Massachusetts. Most of the area's mountains are part of the Appalachians, but Mount Tom is part of the Metacomet Ridge, a very narrow ridgeline that runs from Long Island Sound all the way up through Massachusetts, almost to the Vermont border. In northern Connecticut and Massachusetts, the ridge runs through the Connecticut River Valley, meaning that although the mountains are relatively low, they stand out because of how much higher they are than the rest of the valley. The Metacomet Ridge is also much newer than most of the other mountains in Massachusetts. The ridge formed starting about 200 million years ago, when the supercontinent Pangaea began to split up. The separation of the continents created rifts, causing magma to flow up to the surface and harden into basalt that today forms the steep, rugged cliffs of the Mount Tom Range and other mountains in the range. By contrast, the Appalachians are about twice as old, having been formed when the continents collided to create Pangaea about 400 million years ago. Although the Metacomet Ridge is in both Massachusetts and Connecticut, the highest peaks are all in Massachusetts. The highest is in Mount Toby in Sunderland, which is geologically related yet isolated from the rest of the ridge. Aside from Mount Toby, the highest sections of the ridge are the Mount Tom Range on the west side of the river and the Mount Holyoke Range on the east side of the river. The names of these two mountains date back to the early colonial period. As the story goes, colonists Eliza Holyoke and Rowland Thomas led an expedition up the Connecticut River, with Holyoke traveling up the east side and Thomas on the west side. After reaching an area where the river passes between two mountain ranges, the two men decided to name the eastern one for Holyoke and the western one for Thomas. Whether or not this story is true, Mount Tom had definitely acquired its name by 1662, when it was referenced on a land deed. However, there seems to have been little effort to actually climb the mountains during the 17th and 18th centuries. Settlers of this time period tended to have a dim view of mountains in general, seeing them as transportation obstacles with little productive value. However, this would begin to change in the early 19th century, as the Romantic era of art and literature began placing a greater emphasis on an appreciation of nature. By the 1820s, some mountains in the Northeast started featuring summit houses for visitors to get food, refreshments, and sometimes lodging while taking in the views. The first of these summit houses opened in 1821 on Mount Holyoke. Although lower in elevation than Mount Tom, Mount Holyoke is generally considered to have the better scenery, and this view was made famous by Thomas Cole, whose 1836 painting of the scene, The Oxbow, is regarded as one of the masterpieces of American landscape art. The current summit house on Mount Holyoke, originally known as the Prospect House, was built in 1851. Ten years later, a rival hotel, the Erie House, opened across the river on Mount Nonotuck, at the northern end of the Mount Tom Range. The Erie House was never as popular as the Prospect House, though. It had its heyday in the 1870s and 1880s, but by the 1890s it was in serious decline. Its owner, William Street, began a large expansion plan around this time, but he ultimately had to stop the project because of financial troubles. Then, in April 1901, Street accidentally set fire to his hotel, 
while trying to cremate two dead horses at the summit. Because of its isolated mountaintop location, the firefighting efforts were futile, and the hotel was a total loss. In the meantime, the actual summit of Mount Tom, which is located on the far southern end of the range near present-day Route 141 in Holyoke, remained undeveloped throughout most of the 19th century. Supposedly, around the turn of the 19th century, a local farmer named Clement Farnham built a summer cottage at the summit, but this building was removed around 1827. Otherwise, the summit appears to have remained vacant until the 1890s, when William S. Loomis of the Holyoke Street Railway purchased a large tract of land on the mountain, including the summit, and began developing it into a trolley park for his company. Such parks were common during this period, as the trolley companies benefited not only from the admission prices, but also from the increased ridership on weekends, when trolley lines were normally less busy. At the base of the mountain, the Holyoke Street Railway built Mountain Park, which featured attractions such as a dance hall, a restaurant, a small roller coaster, and a carousel. These were fairly typical for trolley parks of the era, but Loomis had far more ambitious plans, to build a railroad up the mountain along with a large summit house on the top. To accomplish this, the state legislature chartered the Mount Tom Railroad Company in 1896. It was technically a separate corporation from the Holyoke Street Railway, but it might as well have been a part of it. Its first board of directors was nearly identical to that of the Street Railway, and its first president was, likewise, William S. Loomis. Soon after, before any track had even been laid, these directors approved a 50-year lease of the Mount Tom Railroad by the Holyoke Street Railway. It should be noted that, at the time, the northern part of Holyoke, including the summit of Mount Tom, was part of Northampton. Known as Smith's Ferry, this section was a geographic exclave of Northampton, as it was separated from the rest of the city by a small portion of East Hampton along the Connecticut River. During the colonial period, all of the Hampton cities and towns, Northampton, Southampton, East Hampton, and West Hampton, had been part of Northampton, but the others split off during the 19th century, leaving Northampton with its present-day boundaries, plus the isolated and largely unpopulated Smith's Ferry section. The old boundary between Holyoke and Northampton ran east to west, just to the north of the present-day River Terrace. This area would remain a part of Northampton until 1909, when dissatisfied residents successfully lobbied the state legislature to be annexed by Holyoke, arguing that Northampton was failing to provide services for them. Although the Mount Tom Railroad would be leased by the Holyoke Street Railway, this railroad would be very different from the trolley lines that the Street Railway Company operated. Normal trains and trolleys can handle only very gentle inclines, but the Mount Tom Railroad would need to be much steeper in order to get to the summit. There are several different ways for railroads to overcome steep slopes. The Mount Washington Cog Railway, for example, uses a rack and pinion system with gear wheels that pull the locomotives up the mountain and control its speed on the way down. Other systems use cables, most famously in San Francisco, where cable cars ascend the city's steep hills by clamping onto a continuously moving cable, and then stop by disengaging from the cable. Here on Mount Tom, the engineers ultimately went with a type of cable railway known as a funicular. Funiculars operate by having two cars that are permanently attached to each other on opposite ends of a cable. As one car descends, its weight helps to pull up the other car, which significantly reduces the amount of energy needed to ascend the slope. These can operate on very steep slopes, and they were often used as tourist destinations in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
Among these was the Otis Elevating Railway in New York, which brought guests to the Catskill Mountain House. Although the cars on funicular railways are counterbalanced to help pull each other up, they still need an external source of power in order to account for friction and differences in numbers of passengers between the two cars. On many funiculars, the cable itself is powered. This was the case in the Catskills, where there was a powerhouse at the top of the Otis Elevating Railway. However, this was not necessary here on Mount Tom, since the Holyoke Street Railway already had an extensive network of electric trolleys, including a line that ran to the base of the mountain. So, the two cars on the Mount Tom Railroad had electric motors, which were powered by overhead wires in the same way as regular trolleys. The Mount Tom Railroad was nearly a mile long, running from Mountain Park up to just below the summit. It rose about 700 feet in elevation, with an average grade of 14% and a maximum grade of 21.5% at its steepest section. The railroad was mostly straight, aside from a gentle curve right before the summit station. Along the way, this route required several rock cuts and fills to maintain a consistent grade. The largest of these cuts, which is still visible, is about a third of a mile below the summit station. The two cars were named for Rowland Thomas and Eliza Holyoke, in honor of these supposed namesakes of Mount Tom and Mount Holyoke. Each car was 36 feet long, 9 feet wide, and could seat 84 passengers. They were connected to each other by a 5,050-foot-long, 1-and-a-quarter-inch steel cable, which passed over a large sheave at the summit. This sheave was mounted on an A-frame that was, in turn, bolted securely to the rock. In addition, the cars maintained constant telephone connection with each other by way of telephone lines that ran alongside the tracks, just above ground level. The cars connected to these by way of brush-like shoes that ran along the top of the wires as the car moved. Because of the steep grade of the railroad, the car's braking ability was of critical importance, as an uncontrolled descent would likely have deadly consequences. To prevent this, the cars had several independent braking systems. Each car was equipped with standard trolley brakes, but the cable itself was controlled by a centrifugal governor at the summit that automatically slowed the cable once it began moving faster than 1,400 feet per minute, or about 16 miles per hour. The second feature obviously only worked if the cable remained intact, but there was yet another braking system in the event of a catastrophic failure of the cable. The railroad tracks had a third rail, which was located inside the tracks next to the cable. The motorman could, in the event of an emergency, activate a lever that would cause the car to clamp onto this rail. This could also be done automatically by a governor that was set to engage the rail once the car exceeded 1,500 feet per minute, or about 17 miles per hour. In any funicular railway, one of the other challenges is determining how the two cars will pass each other. The simplest solution is to have two parallel tracks, with each car operating on its own track at all times. However, this requires a wider right-of-way, along with significantly more materials than a single-track railway. One alternative is a three-rail funicular, in which each car has its own outside rail and shares the middle one, diverging only at a short passing section. The other option is to have one track for both cars, with a turnout at the halfway point. This requires the least amount of land and materials, but it requires a complex track arrangement at the turnout to ensure each car takes the correct path and safely crosses over the cable. Here on Mount Tom, the engineers chose the third option. The two cars met at a passing loop that, at first glance, looks similar to a standard railroad switch, 
but the key difference here is that it had no moving parts. Instead, the cars and tracks were designed so that each one could only take one path, which remained the same regardless of whether the car was heading up or down the mountain. As such, the Rowland Thomas always took the tracks on the north side, while the Eliza Holyoke always took the south side. To achieve this, the two cars had different wheel arrangements. The wheels on one side of the car had a wider tread than the other side, which caused them to be guided along deflector rails onto the correct track. For the Rowland Thomas, these wide tread wheels were on the left side when it was heading uphill, and for the Eliza Holyoke, they were on the right side. On the same side as these wheels, each car also had an extra set of wheels that were raised slightly above the others, and hung out about 15 inches from the main wheels. Because the turnout required gaps in the main rail to allow the cable to pass through, there was a short section of rail next to these gaps. As the main wheels approached the gap, the auxiliary wheels would roll along this additional rail, preventing what would otherwise be a derailment. Construction of the railroad began in March 1897, with a workforce that consisted largely of Italian laborers. It was completed around the end of May, and this was followed by the construction of the Summit House, with the contractors apparently using the newly finished railroad to haul supplies to the Summit. The Summit House was designed by the local architectural firm of Clough and Reed, and it was described in an article published in the Springfield Republican on April 9, 1897. The house will be 76 by 92 feet, the walls enclosing a piazza on two floors that will be around the entire building, and which will be 14 feet wide. On the lower floor of the building there will be a dining room and women's parlor, at the north end facing the stopping place of the cars. There will be a recreation room at the south end, 42 by 48 feet. The view from this room will be fine, but there will be a better view from the second story, which will be planned in the same way as the lower floor. A large amusement room or hall will take up the place of the recreation room, and a stage and anterooms will be at the north end. The third floor of the building will constitute a telescope room. It will be 33 by 25 feet, and will contain a suitable telescope for looking long distances. The main entrance will be at the east or Holyoke side, where the walk from the car station will end, but there will also be entrances on the other sides. One thing that was not included in this building was overnight accommodations. Unlike the rival Erie House and Prospect House, the Summit House was not a hotel, so it only catered to day visitors. The railroad and Summit House were both completed in time for the 1897 summer season. They were both open throughout the summer and into the fall foliage season before closing for the winter at the end of October. Round-trip fare was 25 cents and included the trolley ride along with the use of the Summit House. The trolleys were scheduled to run twice an hour, with extra trips as needed. However, by September, this schedule was insufficient to keep up with the demand, as indicated by a Republican article that criticized the railroad for dangerously overcrowded trolleys. Contemporary sources give differing figures for ridership during this first season, either 60,000 or 80,000. Either way, this is similar to what the railroad would see for visitors over the next few years, consistently averaging around 60 to 80,000 throughout its early 20th century heyday. During its early years, the single-day record was 3,300 visitors, which occurred on a Labor Day. Perhaps the most distinguished visitor to the Summit House was President William McKinley, who came to Mount Tom along with his wife Ida on June 19, 1899. A number of onlookers gathered at the lower station to catch a glimpse of the President, 
who sat in the front seat of the Eliza Holyoke trolley for the ride up the mountain. At the summit, he and Ida were likewise greeted by a large crowd, and they spent time enjoying the view before heading back down the mountain. The next day's edition of the Boston Journal described the scene. From the summit of famous Mount Tom, President McKinley this afternoon viewed the panorama of New England's most gorgeous scenery that, on every hand, spreads out before the view. For forty miles in whichever direction the eye is turned, lakes silvery in the sunlight, hamlets half-hidden by the clustering trees, beautiful green fields, and verdant woodland enchant the vision. Down through the center of the picture winds the sparkling stream of the Connecticut, skimming the cities of Holyoke and Springfield, which red and white in the distance form a sharp contrast to the rural landscape. Around the outer edge of the scene, the blue hills of three New England states erect a framework, the whole enclosing a fair prospect as ever human eye beheld. To say the president was delighted with his journey to this delightful spot is putting it mildly, and Mrs. McKinley, who, despite her weak condition, braved the fatigue of the trip, was charmed. After alighting from the car at the top of the sharp incline, she was placed in an invalid's chair and wheeled to the level walk at the top of the ascent. Then the president, who shares the tenderest regard for his wife, offered her his arm and led her slowly and carefully to the observatory. As the president, escorting Mrs. McKinley, passed along the platform, the crowd of people applauded him loudly. He recognized the acclamations by taking off his light hat and bowing politely on all sides. Some cameras and B.F. Keith's biograph machine were directed full upon the party, and excellent pictures must have been secured. This biograph machine was an early motion picture camera, and the film that it captures still exists. This 30-second clip is held at the Library of Congress, and it's a rare surviving example of a 19th century film clip, and possibly the oldest existing film from western Massachusetts. As it turned out, the McKinleys would be the first of at least two presidential couples who would travel up the Mount Tom Railroad. About five years later, a young Calvin Coolidge and Grace Goodhue visited the mountain on a date, albeit with far less fanfare than what the McKinleys had experienced. At the time, Calvin was a young lawyer in Northampton, and Grace was a teacher at the Clark School for the Deaf. While at the Summit House, he purchased a souvenir plaque of the mountain, which became the first gift that he ever gave her. And, given Coolidge's famous Yankee frugality, he must have really liked her in order to spend money on such a frivolous item as a souvenir plaque. They subsequently married in 1905, and he went on to become governor, vice president, and then ultimately president in 1923. However, the summit house that Calvin and Grace visited was not the same building that the McKinleys had visited. The original summit house lasted here for just a little over three years, before burning on October 9, 1900. The cause of the blaze was never determined, although it apparently started in the basement, where the watchman discovered it around 8.45 p.m. Some of the contents were rescued from the building, but otherwise it was a total loss. The fire proved to be quite a spectacle for the surrounding area, and it was reportedly visible from at least 20 miles away. The Springfield Republican, reporting on it the following day, dramatically described how, From one end of the valley to the other, north and south, men's eyes were turned to the beacon of flame in wonder, in pity, and in admiration. Further in its narrative, the newspaper declared that, The sight of such a titanic bonfire will not soon be forgotten by those who witnessed it.
the owners quickly moved to construct a new building. The second Summit House was completed in 1901, and it was significantly larger than the original one. The dining room was located on the first floor, with a hall and stage on the second floor. Both of these floors also had 14-foot-wide piazzas that extended around the entire building. The third floor featured another hall, along with storerooms and water tanks, and it was surrounded by an open deck above the piazzas. The main observatory, with its large plate-class windows, was on the fourth floor, but there were three more levels of observatories that rose above it. The highest level was the cupola, which measured 11 feet in diameter and stood nearly 100 feet above the ground. It was equipped with telescopes, and it was topped by an octagonal copper dome that was covered in gold leaf. Overall, the Summit House cost about $25,000 to build, and like the original one, it was designed by local architect James A. Clough, who was responsible for a number of important buildings in Holyoke at the turn of the 20th century. The new building opened for visitors in May 1901, and throughout the first quarter of the 20th century, it remained a popular attraction. The number of visitors remained fairly consistent during this time, with an average of about 75,000 in its later years, and 80,000 in the second Summit House's last full season in 1928. Throughout this time, the Mount Tom Railroad appears to have had a good safety record. However, there were occasional breakdowns that forced passengers to walk down the mountain, and in at least one instance causing a number of people to spend the night in makeshift accommodations at the Summit House. On July 24, 1928, at about 9.15 p.m., the Rowland Thomas had to stop about 150 feet from the upper station because of a broken journal on one of its axles. This likewise caused the Eliza Holyoke to stop the same distance from the lower station. The passengers on the Eliza Holyoke were able to easily return to the station, but about 50 people were stranded at the summit. Many chose to walk down the mountain in the dark, guided by railroad employees with lanterns, but 22 remained at the summit house overnight. Some stayed up all night, playing bridge and dancing, and most descended the mountain after sunrise, although four guests stayed at the summit until railroad service was restored later in the day. A similar incident occurred less than a month later, when a spread rail stopped the trolleys at about 9 p.m. This time, 35 people walked down in the dark, but it doesn't appear that anyone spent the night at the summit. Overall, the railroad appears to have avoided major problems, but fire would continue to plague the Summit House itself. Like its predecessor, the second Summit House was also destroyed by a fire. The night watchman discovered the fire on the observation floor around 6 p.m. on the night of May 2, 1929. After alerting the fire department, he attempted to extinguish the flames himself, but he was unsuccessful. By the time the firefighters arrived, there was little that they could do to save the building. Their efforts were hampered, at least in part, by the fact that the hotel's 5,000-gallon water tanks were not properly working. As with the burning of the first Summit House, this blaze attracted considerable attention in the vicinity of the mountain, and it was visible from at least 30 miles away. The Holyoke Street Railway, which still owned the property, even capitalized on the public's morbid curiosity, and within a matter of days they were bringing sightseers up here on trolleys to view the remains of the Summit House which consisted of little more than the stone foundation and the chimney. In the meantime, the Holyoke Street Railway wasted no time in building a temporary replacement. This hastily constructed summit house opened less than two months later at the end of June, and it consisted of two stories with a steel frame and corrugated steel walls. 
It was located immediately to the north of the old building, and it was much smaller than either of its two predecessors, with dancing and dining facilities relocated to Mountain Park. But the new building did offer refreshments and souvenirs, along with telescopes for visitors to use. Although designed to be temporary, this third building was never replaced by a permanent structure. Mountaintop resorts such as the Summit House were already in decline by the late 1920s, thanks to the increasing popularity of automobiles and the new travel opportunities that they created. The Great Depression, which began just months after the Grand Reopening, did not help matters either, and by the end of the 1930s, both the Mount Tom Railroad and the Summit House had closed. The railroad tracks were taken up in 1938 or early 1939, and the temporary Summit House was dismantled around the same time. The steel beams were sold for scrap, but the corrugated steel panels were unceremoniously dumped over the side of the cliff, where they still remain more than 80 years later. Only the upper railroad station, which was just a little further to the north of the summit, was left standing, but this burned in 1941. The Holyoke Street Railway continued to operate Mountain Park at the base of the mountain, and the park survived into the late 1980s. However, in 1944, the company sold the summit area to the WHYN radio station. Using the mountain's elevation to increase its range, WHYN built towers and transmitter buildings here in the foundation of the old summit house. Also during this time, the old railroad grade was converted into a paved access road. Around the time that this was going on, though, the former railroad grade became the site of one of the area's worst aviation disasters. On the night of July 9, 1946, an Army Air Corps B-17 airplane was en route from Goose Bay, Labrador, to Westover Field in Chicopee. The plane had a crew of four, and it also carried 21 passengers who were returning from active duty in Greenland, including 15 Coast Guardsmen, four Army Air Corps servicemen, and two civilians. While attempting to land at the nearby airfield in the dark on a rainy night, the plane instead crashed into Mount Tom hitting the exposed rock at one of the large cuts along the railroad grade. The impact disintegrated the plane, killing all 25 men instantly and starting a large fire. A group of people at nearby Mountain Park began climbing the mountain, but they could not get close to the crash scene because of the intense heat. And in any case, there was unfortunately little that could be done to assist at that point. In the meantime, the radio project was completed in 1947, when WHYN and two other local stations, WACE and WMAS, began broadcasting from there. Since then, a number of other telecommunication towers have been added to the summit area, most of them inside the foundation of the old summit house. The foundation is still visible, although it's off-limits behind chain-link fences. Aside from the foundation, there are plenty of other remnants of the summit house and railroad. Probably the most obvious is the large concrete promenade on the west side of the summit. Although crumbling in some parts, it is mostly intact, and it still has the original railings running along the edge of the cliff. If you visit, you might notice that the support beams for the promenade are actually railroad rails. These were presumably materials that were left over from the construction of the railroad. The concrete footings of the last summit house are also still there, along with the building's front steps. And if you look down the side of the cliff, the slope is covered with large pieces of corrugated metal from the building's walls. If you look carefully at the exposed rocks near the summit, you can also find graffiti that visitors have carved into the rocks over the years. Many of these predate even the first summit house, 
and the oldest that I have found says E.N. Cartwright, Holyoke, Mass., and is dated August 1875. As for the railroad, it also has many surviving remnants, although they tend to be less visible. The route of the railroad is still a paved access road, although it is closed to private vehicles. When the railroad tracks were torn up in the late 1930s, the rails were removed for scrap, but the wooden ties were discarded in the woods along the tracks. Today there are still piles of these ties in the woods, many of them remarkably well-preserved more than 80 years later. The wooden poles that once held up the overhead trolley wires are long gone, but many of the metal supports for these poles are still visible along the north side of the railroad grade. The single largest remnant from the railroad is probably the base of the A-frame, located at the former site of the upper station, just to the north of the summit. This A-frame supported the sheave that held the cable, so it had to withstand the pull of two fully loaded trolley cars. If you visit it, you'll see how firmly it is anchored to the rock, since the entire railroad depended on this structure not getting dislodged and sending the two trolleys plummeting down the tracks. That's probably the reason why, when the scrappers removed the tracks, they cut off the top of the A-frame but left the base here, rather than trying to take it out of the rock. On a more somber note, there are also many remnants of the B-17 crash on the mountainside, including pieces of twisted metal and fragments of melted aluminum. The site of the crash is now marked by a monument that is inscribed with the names of the 25 men who died here. It's located on the north side of the old railroad, near one of the large rock cuts about a third of a mile below the summit area. Although there are no longer any trolleys or elaborate summit houses on Mount Tom today, the mountain remains a popular destination for hikers looking to take in the same views that drew visitors here more than a century ago. If you are interested in visiting the site of the summit house, the fastest way up is to park in one of the many small parking areas along Route 141 in Holyoke, near the log cabin. There are a number of unmarked trails leading from these parking areas, but it doesn't really matter which one you take. As long as you keep heading uphill, you'll eventually reach the white-blazed New England Trail, also known as the metacomet Monadnock Trail. In total, it's about a mile round trip. An alternative route to the summit is from the north, by parking at the Mount Tom State Reservation, and taking the New England Trail south along the ridgeline. It's longer, about four miles round trip, but it's a great hike along the rugged cliffs of Mount Tom, with many scenic overlooks along the way. Whichever route you take to the summit, be sure to respect the fences and no trespassing signs around the towers at the summit. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Western Mass History. For more information about the Mount Tom Railroad and the Summit House, visit our social media pages for both historic and present-day photos of the mountain, along with links to articles and then-and-now photos from my blog, lostnewengland.com. You can also follow Western Mass History on facebook.com slash westernmasshistory, and on Instagram, at Western Mass History. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. If you like this episode, you can also subscribe to future episodes. Western Mass History is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.